I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to Countercurrents Radio. I have two guests tonight, Cyan and James from White Papers. And I have a third guest, or maybe a co-host, David Zuddy of the Homeland Institute. Before we go into the stream itself, though, I would like to remind everybody that Countercurrents is doing a fundraiser. We are rapidly approaching the end of the year. There's a banner across the screen. If you would like to send a super chat for James or Cyan or David or me with a donation, please go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents without the hyphen. Hit the green button. We're not streaming through there, but you can take out your credit card and send a donation along with your question and comment, and it would be most welcome. And we have a matching grant going from now until Christmas which will make your money go twice as far. So we very much appreciate that. Again, you can also send money through Odyssey Tips if you would like to do that. You can send us diamonds, lemons, ninjets, ninjaginis over at DLive. We will gladly welcome those. And I, I don't know if the double includes doubling lemons. I don't know if that works, but we'll, we'll have to ask. But we might even be able to match your lemons if you send them along. So we very much appreciate it. So I would like to first bring on my co-host, David. David, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. And I would like to bring on James from White Papers. James, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. And I would like to say to the audience, everyone, please donate. I love answering questions. One of my favorite things to do, Cyan and I were just talking about this. So please, by all means, uh, support countercurrents and fuel the conversation. Excellent. Thank you. I, I, you're a team player. I appreciate that. And finally, the fourth member of our team tonight is Cyan Quinn. Cyan, welcome to the show. You are not coming through. You're muted somehow. And I don't see a mute on your microphone. So... Now, now, now I see a mute sign. So there's something wrong with your with your sound. So while you're working on that, let me begin by asking James a question. So James, for those of us out here in Radio Land who don't know much about white papers, what does it do, and when did you begin? Oh goodness, this this the begin. We'll start with the beginning. I originally launched the project as a website that I made myself in 2019. And I think I published, that website's gone by the way. I think I published four or five pieces all on policy. But then when we got into the COVID pandemic, um, my university work also happened to ramp up significantly at the time. So I set the project aside. Um, and at that point it didn't have significant traction anyway. And then in, the, near the end of 2021, or 2020 rather, I decided, oh, I'll make a Telegram channel. I'll just make some Telegram posts. I didn't think it would be any big deal. It was just the occasional comment on policy because I think as both of you are probably aware, eventually, especially in our politics, you realize that people aren't just going to kind of, you know, wander along and start something up. You have to do it yourself. So it, the instant... It evolved from a Telegram channel into an actual institution, and most of what we do is analyze public policy through a nationalist lens, propose policy alternatives. I do a lot of 
budget scrutinizing for you know things like the cost of diversity really picking apart the numbers mainstream media narratives that sort of thing so how many pieces have you published now oh my goodness that's a, i don't even know this i was actually having this conversation with cyan the other day there are so many now and i'm sure you know this feeling greg you've been writing for so long i'm forgetting titles i'm forgetting <laughs> oh yeah yeah I'm, that's the point I'm to. If I had to take a wild guess, it's probably 40 or 50 original pieces on the Substack. And then if I'm counting the Telegram, because there's a lot of original stuff written on the Telegram, that's the number of posts on the Telegram is well over 650 at this point. Wow, that's a lot. Cyan, can you hear us now? And can we hear you? That's the question. That's a good question. Um, I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me okay? Is my sound quality? No, you're, you're totally awful. Yeah. We can't comprehend you at all. <laughs> yeah, you're sort of roboting or whatever they call that. Yeah. So. Okay. Let me try this and that's when I'll come back. Okay. <laughs> uh, goodness. Yes. Yes. Well, that's amazing. That's a lot of publishing. And if you had to characterize for, well, let's first of all characterize your outlook. How do you describe your political philosophy and how did you come to the views that you hold today? Well, I'm definitely a nationalist. I tend not to qualify that with other words. I mean, you could qualify it with white nationalist. That would be strictly accurate, but I just prefer the term nationalist as a broad term. And the my audience will be very familiar with the story because I've told it numerous times on my own, the podcast on the Substack. I came to these politics over a decade ago, actually. I was 14 years old at the time that I got red-pilled, and it was by reality because I grew up in a very, very, very rural white area. Then I went to an early college program in a very diverse area. And my firsthand experience with diversity is what brought me to these politics. And I have been here ever since. And the first contact I ever had with sort of what we broadly call either the dissident right or the movement would have been a combination of Jared Taylor and Red Ice and actually Millennial Woes. And then from Millennial Woes, it was sort of Tavidere-ish content. And then I became aware of countercurrents and uh, it sort of snowballed from there. And here I am. That's great. That's, that's fantastic. And, what is your approach? Do you take a particular kind of approach to uh, crafting your analyses? Yes, most of uh, most of the political analysis we do, or I do rather, is on the cornerstone of sort of reversing the Great Replacement, what I've come to call the Great Repatriation. There's some fascinating stuff out there about the demographic realities in the West, and and really, I. I hate using the word simple, but for lack of a better term, you know, sort of in comparative policymaking, how relatively simple it would be with a bit of political will to deal with this problem. Um, what we really face is an issue of a political class that has no interest in this, but I, I, you gentlemen are both very well aware of this. My uh, essay, uh, which I originally published as The Slow Cleanse, and then I changed it for optics reasons, thank you, Z-Man, to Restoring White Homelands, is about how I think that one could 
reverse the great replacement. And that's, I, I think, again, it's completely feasible. For years, I would be getting people saying things like, there's so many of them, they couldn't possibly leave. And my answer was always, if it was possible for them to come, it's possible for them to go. I absolutely bristle at how lacking in imagination people are, how mindless people are about this. But they they really do think, well, we, we couldn't reverse this. Somehow these things which are happening all around us only go one way. Family reunification only goes to our disadvantage. Somehow airplanes and ships come here full of people and they, they go back practically empty. And, and yet we can't imagine reversing this process. So what are some of the ways that you believe that we can reverse the Great Replacement? Uh, mainly through changing policy. So obviously a, a very obvious one for illegal immigration, which is a significant problem in much of the United States, is E-Verify, which would simply make these people unable to work. That would deal with the illegal immigrant population. But for example, I these are just some numbers I was pulling from my own work. Roughly 20% of arrests and convictions every year in the United States are Hispanic. That's about six million about six million Hispanics in the United States have some form of serious violent felony criminal record. And that is grounds for the repeal of citizenship. This you can find. I have links on the Substack. This is on the Department of Justice website. These people could be denaturalized, and they could be sent home tomorrow. After you know, it was placed before a court, but they tend to rubber stamp this one. DOJ puts it in front of them anyway, and that's just one very quick example. And there, there are many, many more. There are five million people in the United States under the age of eighteen who are the children of illegal immigrants. Now. Mm -hmm. You mentioned family reunification. White Papers takes the position that breaking up families is a very bad idea. So if your illegal immigrant parent leaves, then you will have to go as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. it, you know, it's sort of these these various little tweaks in policy, almost all of which can be done through the executive. That's another thing I focus on. I don't like to, and it needs to be done, don't get me wrong, but I don't like to propose sort of sweeping legislative reform or altering the constitution again those things are desirable in the long term but executive action to immediately begin reversing the process is the lens by which i make most of my policy suggestions well i think that's very practical if the laws are already on the books then you don't need to make any policy proposals however uh, is it not possible to uh make people in effect stateless. Uh, if you revoke someone's citizenship, don't you have to make sure that they are citizens of somewhere? Yes, you do. But that's another very interesting point. 45% of the adult Hispanic population in the United States has another citizenship or was born abroad and therefore qualifies. When you get into their children, especially the second generation, uh, His Hispanic Americans, virtually all of them qualify for citizenship by descent. Well over 80% of Asian Americans fall into this category, and about 10 million African black people in the United States also fall into this category. We have sort of, there, there's sort of like a 40-year space we have ahead of us where 
the vast majority of these populations will still qualify for foreign citizenship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that would be good if it's already uh, a done deal. And I suppose there would be ways of working if, again, if we simply had political will, there would be ways of working with foreign countries to get them to take people back or extend citizenship to descendants of people who came from there. Uh, yeah, I, I actually have a whole piece on this. And my, this is what I mentioned at the start. I'm, I'm beginning to begin, uh, beginning to forget uh, the great repatriation and unwilling states. And I yeah. focus on uh, the series of congressional testimonies that was done by Ambassador Michelle Thorne Bond. She was brought before Congress and Congress asked her, you know, when we try to deport these people, you know, why can't we get it done? Why are, why are they sitting, you know, essentially sitting on the tarmac for months and we can't get rid of 118 criminals from Guyana for Pete's sake. And yeah. she said it's because these countries simply don't respond. So America or any other Western country really will send a request to these governments, please verify the identity of your citizens so we can give them a travel document to deport them from our country because you know, they assaulted someone, you know, and these countries simply won't respond. But uh, what Ambassador Bond had testified was America has a very strong series of tools like restricting visas for the elites of these countries. Absolutely. When it has done this in the past, and it's done this to Gambia, it did it to Guy. America did this to Guyana. The elites of these countries usually relent in a matter of weeks, because their you know luxurious lifestyle and access to Western amenities gets cut off. Gets cut off. So if you don't want to willingly participate with us, we will put pressure on you. And there are so many ways of, of putting pressure on them, especially pressure on the rulers. So you can't be really accused of harming poor people in African countries right. or South American countries by uh, embargoing trade or something like that, right. I embargoing actually medicine. I actually suggest in my article that we put very, very strict embargoes on luxury products, meaning the entire West. We, everyone within reason should band together and put massive embargoes on luxury products. The elite in Africa and China and parts of South America have massive consumptive habits for Western luxury goods, particularly luxury goods from Europe. Yeah. Yeah. That really goes into a kind of a continuous theme of non-whites not, not really reciprocating or having a Saxon view of the rule of law, where if we get tripped up by our rules all the time, we'll be taken advantage of. They don't really respect rules unless there's force behind them. So we can't expect people to just follow the paperwork or the rules that they sign. They have to be kind of prodded a little bit. And we have to take the gloves off and just say, I don't care about your feelings. Sorry, no more luxury products. What a tragedy. Yeah. But oh, I was wondering. No. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You won't be able to get your liposuction done in California. You won't be able to get your chemotherapy done. Uh, right. In New York State, uh, there are there are all kinds of uh, pressures you can put on these sociopathic elites. You won't be able to hide your ill-gotten gains in banks and investment funds in Miami, right. and they would cave instantly because, yes, honestly, they don't care. They they don't have that much connection with their countries. They're they're basically just milking them for all they're worth. And if the grift is interrupted in any way then they will, uh, they'll definitely prick up their ears and become more compliant. 
Indeed, Cyan's ready to be let back in. By the way, yeah. she believes you fixed her mic. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's add let's her. Give in. this a try. Cyan, hi there. Hello. Okay, hello, testing. Oh my goodness, there we go. We can hear hi. all hi. of what you're saying. Not my every other partner has returned. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. All right. Sorry about that, guys. I when we were on Millennial on Sunday. Uh, I got a few complaints from people saying, oh, we can, you know, see, you know, you better watch the mirror in the back or your lighting's not good. You need to change that because uh, the way that I have, I usually work at that desk, which is a standing desk. And there's a mirror on the other side, which lets all the light in. But people were saying like, oh, you know, we, you need to be careful about that <laughs> because people can see the cat videos I'm watching instead of the stream I'm paying attention to or something. No, so, no. Um, so I moved it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so sorry you're about being, the boomer tech. You're being but. so modest, Cyan. You had a great many fans on that millennial stream, especially at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, people are, people are super nice. But, um, no, I'm really glad to be here. And I, you know, was listening to you guys talking. I just wanted to chime in, too, when you were talking about the repatriation pieces, that this is the... Um, you know, this to me is a driving factor in whether or not you get action out of people. Um, they have to be able to look at a situation and say, I see the solution within my lifetime. And uh, that's how you motivate people to act. Um, in America, a lot of people can get discouraged by saying, oh, look at the last census results where what are we like still 57 percent white is going down every year. Things are so depressing. Well, actually, we're still a majority of the electorate. And uh, like you've been pushing, James, in these well-crafted pieces, uh, you've been saying a lot of them are new arrivals. Uh, and if we enforce a lot of existing um, immigration policy that's already on the books, then this kind of deportation operation can happen. Um, and people want that. And it can happen within our lifetimes in places like California that you would think are like completely lost causes. Um, if you take the white population who lives there, uh, they're actually pretty evenly divided. And so you can really, if it's just a matter of taking a look at the new arrivals and saying, um, you know, we won't support your social services. Like what was that proposition? 197. Um, but, uh, you know, we won't support social services for, um, people who are non-citizens. Then a lot of those people will just self-deport, uh, already. So, and that's what we saw with Operation Wetback too, is that I think there were like 1.1 million, uh, deportation operations and another another half million people went ahead and deported themselves of their own volition because they said look okay we see where things are going in the u.s and um it's not going to be favorable to new arrivals they're standing up for themselves finally they're or they're a serious country uh we better go back to our own countries and fix the problems there instead of uh you know looking for opportunities elsewhere yeah, the uh, the op the examples from history of Operation Wetback and also in the 1930s, uh, there was another mass deportation event in the United States, I, I think are very useful. And of course, there are all kinds of examples in the news today about mass deportations going on in places like Iran and Pakistan. Would you talk a little bit about that, James? Does that play a role in 
what you're doing. Again, the, the issue is just to make this conceivable for people, make it seem politically possible. Uh, and then it just becomes a question of, well, okay, why aren't we doing it? Right. So one example I always think of is actually the partition of India, which we're constantly told was this horrific, incredibly violent affair that you know made everyone miserable. But when you actually dig into that, one of the very interesting things is in the official documentation, when India was partitioned, the British government recommended that everyone stay where they are. The minorities in either state, you'll be just fine. We have all of these special agreements and arrangements in place. And, and after these, uh, after the states were formed along religious lines, um, people just began to move completely voluntarily. And most of the violence was sort of uh, random militias. So that's a very interesting example to me and how people just up and move when the political order changes. Another example is the collapse of the USSR. Uh, Kazakhstan is the perfect example. I've written about it before, actually, when the Kazakhs, who were a minority in their own country, took power after the fall of the USSR, the Russian government put in place incentives and the Kazakh government put in place its own incentives that, you know, sent millions of ethnic Russians flooding back into Russia over the course of a decade. The Russian population in Kazakhstan has fallen by more than half. And the Kazakhs went from, I think their lowest point was 34% of their own population. And today they're almost 80. And that happened in a single lifetime. And right now, as we sit here speaking, Armenians are fleeing Nagorno-Karabakh and, you know, rushing into Armenia proper as Azerbaijan takes over that territory. And the, you know, Western governments who you think would be horrified by this sort of thing aren't saying a word. There's an actual ethnic cleansing happening in real time in Azerbaijan and no one's saying a word. Right. There is an interesting story, too, in the, uh, the region that used to be part of Georgia. And oh my goodness, I, I'm 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 losing my Abkhazia? mind. Abkhazia, yeah, Abkhazia. What a name! <laughs> yeah, Abkhazia. The Ab. Uh, it's it's for, it's easy to for to forget that Abkhazia went from being a society in which the Abkhazians were a minority to a majority Abkhazian, basically ethno state, very very quickly through honestly, a, a pretty nasty war that they fought, a brief but nasty war, which ended with a ritual bull sacrifice to the Abkhazian war gods. So there's something very primal uh, reawakened in that part of the Caucasus after the fall of the, the Soviet empire. These things can happen. You can go from a, a minority in your own country to a majority in your own country within a lifetime. And again, it's not a matter of ways, it's simply a matter of will. And of course, there are really two ways of doing this. There's the hard way and the easy way. There's the peaceful way and the bloody way. There's the Czech and Slovak way of national divorce, or there is the ethnic cleansing that you saw in the Balkans, the violent ethnic cleansing. But these things can be done. And I think it's very, very important just to make it clear to people that, yes, you can dream big. You can actually dream of an America where white people have a future again. 
Uh, and it doesn't have to involve uh, oceans of bloodshed. It will involve a great deal of, of tears and whining from some quarters, but it won't necessarily involve any violence. And, and in fact, given that so much violence is caused by diversity, actually in the long term, it will lead to a more peaceful and less violent society. I mean, I think there are, oh, groups, of, there are groups of people. Oh, I'm sorry, David, please go ahead. Oh, sorry. So I'm not sure if either of you have read uh, Adios America by Ann Coulter. I reference Ann all the time on the podcast. <laughs> yes, I love her. Queen Anne. But it, it's a little bit, it's almost a decade old, but she went into the extreme costs of immigration in regards to crime. I wonder if, if there, if, I'm not sure what she did in the book. It probably needs to be updated because stuff has gotten so much worse. But a way to look at the average price cost of the average immigrant over a year, like say from Latin America or Africa, and then compare that to a first-class luxury Gucci plane ticket. Because one of the things that conservatives usually get caught up on besides silly stuff is usually the price. Kind of like how Greg is saying people aren't imaginative about buses. For, for conservatives, they start thinking, because they're very fiscally minded, they start thinking about the price tag. Mm-hmm. I suspect that a first-class plane ticket would pay it off within a year or less, given how many there's crime issues, there's traffic issues. There's a drain on public services and welfare. So I, I think that'd be good to to sell it would be that this is an investment, which you'll get a return on very, very quickly. You will. I actually did a piece on this just two days ago, uh, which was just the Department of Homeland Security in their budget and, and what they're doing to change the face of the country. Because the one thing they're not doing is securing the country. God forbid they do that. Um and one of the classic retorts of sort of the pro-immigration side is that it costs over $10,000 for one deportation. And that's true. It does. It costs about $10,800. But it costs about $9,904 for the average DHS detention span, which is 55 days. And they hold about 30,000 people a month. So it costs damn near the same amount for your average DHS detention for 55 days for 30,000 people a month as it would cost to deport the 30,000 people a month. So the fiscal argument always ends up being either much more balanced than is presented or so you generally somewhat in our favor, especially when, as you said, David, you start including externalities like the cost of the court system or Trust the me, these people the kill police. entire rainforests are destroyed by printing out these people's rap sheets in court. Oh, I believe it. I believe yeah. I, I completely believe it. I don't know yeah. if my idea too is like you said the average cost, but it's kind of like a factory where you produce some, like t-shirts. Generally, when you produce more stuff, it gets cheaper. Yeah. So if you did more deportations, like like there's probably some facility. Well, if it's lying follow and empty it's each one by average does cost more but if you use it to its maximum potential i assume it'd be a, a little bit cheaper maybe a lot cheaper too right yeah, we need a deportation industrial complex basically and we need we need to create financial incentives for there to be a deportation industry uh, and that's i think very very important because okay let's say that we get the political will to turn this around well, the trouble is in America that legislation is bought 
basically. It's bought by interest groups. And there are interest groups that are empowered and enriched by having the border open and people flowing in. There are interest groups who are enriched by remittances going abroad and so forth. We need to create a whole industrial sector that profits from deportation. And, you know, if we could privatize it as much as possible, so you have a private sector of the economy that profits from deportation, then what you would have is that sector of the economy would be lobbying in Congress against the interests of the people who, the the treason lobby, basically. And I think that that would be a, a positive thing because one of the things that happens is that political will fluctuates people's attentions fluctuate. And so what you need to do is you need to have things that aren't so dependent upon the fluctuations of the public mind and political will or which parties in office. Uh, You need to put bureaucracies in place that benefit from deportation. You need to put industries in place that benefit from deportation. And those industries will bribe politicians to keep things going. Uh, and and stabilize the whole process. I mean, what sort of industries would benefit if we ramped up deportation, ramped up border security, border enforcement? The airlines would be wealthier than ever before. I can tell you that. But yeah. many of mm-hmm. many of these industries already exist in in the importation system we have now, and would switch. A great example is that you know, as I said, DHS holds thirty thousand people a month, but they're not actually held in a a facility with a fence that says Department of Homeland Security. No, no, no. They're held in a facility with a fence that says, you know, the the GEP Corporation. It, it's all contracted out at the rate of about 90% to these, these private firms. Those people could just as easily have a contract and we could, you know, up it by 10% for a bit more incentive. That's, okay, you're going to hold 30,000 people every month while we schedule the plane ticket out. I mean, a lot of these things could simply be turned around. Why can't we outsource the the holding too? Why can't we put, why can't we detain Mexican nationals in Mexico in cheaper facilities in Mexico? Do you I think that could. that would be possible? You definitely could if you had the, if you had the approval of the Mexican state. And again, you could just by, just by slapping a, if you really want to harass them, slap a slap a uh, goodness, what is that called? Slap a tear up on every business every business venture of Carlos Slim, and just watch how quickly Mexico gives. Right. We know we also have all these bases across all these military bases in America, which the commander in chief is the commander in chief if he has the willpower to be so. He could simply order them to make themselves useful for once and actually defend the country and not other countries like Israel and hold them there, like. I think they're allowing, I think, I forget which president, but they were allowing migrants to like, or maybe it was during COVID, but they were camping out on base and there was a lot of uproar over that. These places have a bunch of spare room and two, just get a C-13, just put them on there, pack them on there to like how all those people got out of Afghanistan on them. It's a nice ride. It's a little bit bumpy. It's not cozy, but it works. Just use a C-13, C-130 and get them out of here. It was amazing with Afghanistan. I won't go too into the weeds on on precise details of what plane, but it was amazing in Afghanistan how many people they moved that quickly. 
right? I mean, we're told all of the time, oh my goodness, it's such a hassle. The bureaucracy, the paperwork, oh my, it's impossible to move people from one place to another if they don't want to go. You'd be, a, we moved like 13,000 people out of Afghanistan in the course of three days. It was incredible. Under gunfire with explosions in the middle of Kabul. Yeah, a strong leader like Alexander to cut the Guardian nod and tell them that the paperwork is stupid and they can just ignore it. Like the military, I think on purpose, has created an abundance of paperwork to be passive aggressive and do what they want. There's an entrenched way of doing things that can just be burnt up in two seconds by a strong commander in chief. You don't want to get me started on my deep and reviling hatred for the Department of Defense. <laughs> the most incredible waste of money that the human brain has ever devised. It's impressive in a way. Yeah. Yeah, so Cyan, I interrupted you a few minutes ago. I apologize for that. Uh, oh, no, that's okay. I Well, I just wanted to point out that it's, yes, you need these economic interests behind you, uh, but it's also kind of depressing uh, to think about the fact that, oh, we need to create some kind of capitalist incentive uh, to change people's minds on being able to deport illegal immigrants. Um, I mean, you know, I, don't I, we, <laughs> I don't think we need it to change minds, but I do agree with Greg that I think we would need it to, to keep it going in sort of a long-term projection. I don't, I, I could dispute how private that has to be, but it would definitely play a role, I think. Right, mm -hmm. right. It's more of a lamentation instead of it, you know, I acknowledge the reality there, but it's also depressing if you think that, you know, we can't get the political will going just by, you know, through maternal instinct or paternal instinct, you know, with, with parents. Um, and I think that that is there. I mean, you have the, uh, I think that the angel moms um, would be a potential ally in mm -hmm. that sort of operation. You've got, um, there was a story a couple of months ago in New York, Eric, poor <laughs> Mayor Eric Adams, um, their, their black mayor was lamenting about all of the migrants that were camped up there. Uh, they had to put them out on uh, Randall Island and it cost New York City something like $20 million a month uh, in order to keep these migrants there. And of course, it's a safety concern but uh, the the parents in the town actually got upset, uh, mostly because they had planned to house all of these migrants on a soccer field, and it, the camp was supposed to be uh, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't use the word camp. I don't know, maybe it is a camp. Um, but the facility uh, was going to house three thousand adult males uh, on the soccer field right next to the school. And so in that case, the, you know, the parents did say something about it. Um, and I should follow up at this point. I don't think that there's been any additional reporting yet on the logistics of that, but, uh, you know, parents should be upset about the excessive numbers of people who are mostly young men, uh, being housed near their children. And, um, you brought up, David, you brought up Adios America a little while ago. James and I just talked about this on a podcast, uh, I think two weeks ago, where, you know, we asked the question like Anne does. She said, well, who's doing the raping? Because we were talking about the midterm elections and we were talking about the issue of abortion. And the, uh, you know, one of the 
common problems with abortion is, well, okay, you have to have exceptions for rape and incest. Well, who's, um, you know, that's more common in South American countries. They, uh, the big story around the time that um, Roe v. Wade was uh, repealed that people latched onto to say, no, we need abortions is the girl from Ohio who had to travel to Illinois in order to get an abortion because she was 10 years old and she was raped. Well, the who was rapist in that situation was a Guatemalan immigrant. And I just found out that he was had just finished going through his court proceedings and it was determined that they couldn't figure out whether or not he was actually legal. So where has he been living for the last three years? Uh, and in, if he does, when he does get sentenced for rape uh, and then he has to stay in an American prison, then how much does that cost the taxpayer annually? I think $43,000 a year in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> it's obscene. So, uh, so you're, I mean, that is an economic interest of the states. That's an election issue that people should be running on. Um, so, you know, there's an economic interest right there, but, uh, but you guys are right that, you know, things like airline services, the economic interest is going to be very similar in or out. We just need the political will to figure out whether or not we're going to stand up for ourselves and our safety. But that's something we also focus on. What the mo Some of the most popular pieces on white papers are pieces like mainstreaming the Great Replacement and Whites Are With Us. And there's another one, again, I'm forgetting names. There are so many now, which is that, you know, when you look at these cross sections of American public opinion, there is a massive population of people. It's generally about 40% in some of the larger polls done by groups like Ipsos who have, uh, you know, these cross sections of opinion that are closer to us. And the real, in my opinion, naturally, given the work that I do, my opinion is that we have to present these people with things that aren't pie in the sky. So they actually begin to seriously think about the change they want rather than voting for the Republican candidate who's been in office for <laughs> 20 years, whose solution to everything is cut the federal budget. Right. How do you envision changing America to pro-white policies? Do you think it's going to come from voting Republican, from changing the Republican Party from the inside, from new parties emerging? from creating a consensus that transcends partisanship? Uh, how, how do you envision this happening? I would, I would uh, use the term, method, I, I'm somewhat method agnostic in the sense that if you want, in fact, I had just written an article the other day, uh, like, oh, your pro-white policy platform. It, essentially, I think there are way, uh, multiple ways we're going to do this. Um, I think it's going to be both in the mainstream people. I mean, Charlie Kirk has been, beginning to use language that is very similar to us. And while I have many a problem with Charlie Kirk, it's still amazing that he's saying these things finally. And I think it's going to be a combination of people changing their minds who are either inside or adjacent to mostly the existing Republican establishment. I'm not saying go run off and vote for the nearest Republican. My God, uh, don't do that. But if you have a candidate who you know, happens to be approved in the future. I think this is going to be a thing. I was actually 
having a conversation with Keith Woods about this just last night, I think we're getting very close to a period in time where having a, you know, a stamp of approval that says, you know, pro-white politics, this candidate is going to be a serious thing. I, we're years away from, by years, I mean, you know, two or three years away from that being a serious thing in parts of the country. I also think we have to do things like institutional capture. You have to have people who get into a position and they bring three or four people in behind them. And then those people bring three or four people in behind them, sort of our own march through the institutions. You're going to have people at the local level who want to get elected and change things. You're going to have people who want to run for Congress. So in that way, I'm sort of method agnostic. I think that the widespread popularity of politics that are adjacent to us and sort of slowly merging into our lane is going to open up an incredible amount of opportunity very soon. I have a question. So I know with Ban the ADL campaign, that was mostly online. There was some real life activism, but with the election coming up, and I think also after the election, maybe just going forward in general, if we could maybe, I think a good idea would be to blend online and real life activism. For example, if we want a certain pro-white policy, like build the wall or do, do deportations. And there was a hashtag campaign. Well, that ought to be accompanied by write, call, or ideally write, but at least also call your congressman. People are going to say, well, it doesn't matter. Your tweet doesn't matter. But together, it's like mass assault doctrine. A hundred tweets do matter. And trust me, a hundred constituents calling a Congress congressional office will matter. I used to be a, a congressional intern. And whenever something happened in the news, we get inundated with stuff. And we would report hey, this week saw a whole bunch of stuff about these issues or be a summary. So if we could actually get people to do a little bit more than just tweet or like stuff and contact their elected official. I know it sounds corny. I know well, we've done this already, this actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cyan, if you want to explain that a bit. Oh, yeah. No, this is really fun. So we, uh, you wrote the piece titled America's Appalling Ally, which came out right after the um, Israel... Hamas war started October 7th. And uh, it was just a, a, a list of instances where Israel has not been America's greatest ally. And uh, it was an argument for saying, hey, look, we uh, have to stop sending all of this money to foreign wars. And uh, there was a comparison between, uh, the, well, here's the amount of money that is proposed to go to Israel. And uh, this is what we need to use money uh, here for in America, like our infrastructure is falling down. Um, you also had a piece that went through how a lot of our um, like highways are rated uh, C or minus. <laughs> uh, it's a, you know, it's ABC uh, grading system on the infrastructure in the U.S. There are some places in the U.S. where we do not have clean drinking water. And the constituencies of these states uh, in these regions need to be contacting their officials and saying, look, we have no interest in this war and war. What we need is drinkable water, good schools, good infrastructure so that we can go to work, uh, you know, and live our normal, healthy lives. And we were contacted by a reader, Kim, who said that she had put that article into letter format and she went ahead and sent that to her representatives. And so I shared this comment uh, with James and I said, hey, this is exactly what we want to do. I mean, this is what Numbers USA does. Uh, this is what this is. We need to be letting our representatives know how we feel. And this is a very concrete thing 
um, that we can do. So we encouraged our supporters and followers uh, to follow suit, and we got some interesting responses. Yeah, quite a um, few. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, yeah. So I think that that sort of thing, you're right, exactly right, David. And that's what uh, we're trying to do now. One of the big reasons we want to put up the website here in the next month or two, uh, you know, we just came up with some new ideas literally yesterday of things that we want to add to the website. So I we're, know. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying not to bother our developer too much uh, and get it set up before we get it to him. But one of the features of the website is going to be things like uh, trifolds and uh, letter examples that you can send to your representatives, your members of Congress, your senators, whatever, um, to reiterate your pro-white policy positions. Um, now that's something that can happen at a mass level and the representatives can ignore you. And we got a lot of interesting, just canned responses from these representatives saying, oh, well, Israel's our greatest ally. It's like, did you a couple of hostile it? ones too? Oh, that right. was, there was, there were one or two congressmen who were, uh, actually, I think that they were both Congress women who had oh. very, very nasty responses. Let me see if I can find some of them because they're pretty they funny. Um, uh, uh, look in subscriber correspondence in the email site. Right. Probably in there. But it was it was very <laughs> interesting. We had quite a few people send them in, and I imagine there were other people who didn't directly write to us who also sent them in. We had some people make comments. It was uh, it was a good little exercise in seeing how we could mobilize the audience. I was very happy with it, and that's definitely something we're going to do in the future. There's also, as Cyan mentioned, the trifold thing we're working on. I have written articles about how uh, state governments, in fact, I have an article titled, I think it's just Whites and the States. Again, there are so many titles now, which is an outline of policy actions, concrete policy actions that states have already taken in other instances, which you could use to significantly reduce and prevent the growth of a foreign population in an American state just having control in a state capital. So I want to put things like that into trifolds and then also have, you know, one page will be the state demographics and then the other page will be what you can do and people will be able to actually take those out into their community and use these things. And people who are running for a state house, you know, the 9,500 people sit in state houses in the United States, I believe. I think half of them are in New Hampshire. Their legislature is huge. That's a slight joke, but it is huge. Um, and these people have very limited resources. They have generally have to use uh, large amounts of free resources. So if we are the ones, we, not just white papers, but our movement, are the people producing very high quality resources, a lot of people, particularly local Republicans, who tend not to be fully integrated into the Washington machine, will use this stuff. That's exactly right. That's oh, awesome. I, I wanted to just make another comment too. And, you know, not just letter writing, it's not just letter writing campaigns that are important, but also there's a lot that can be done in your local governments. Um, uh, I guess like, you know, going from the big level uh, down, obviously it would be nice if we had executive authority and uh, we got a pro-white president elected. It's Donald Trump, it, who knows? <laughs> um, I think it's pretty great that he's been talking about doing the greatest deportation that America's ever seen 
Um, but, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I wrote about it back when I went to CPAC for countercurrents earlier this year that uh, there were a lot of people in the room who were kind of skeptical about whether or not he'd actually make that happen. Um, but the, you know, the, it would be great if at the executive level, right, you mandated e-verify and did things like that. But um, what James, what you illustrated in the um, the states and the willing piece on the Substack is that there are things like that you can do, like mandate e-verify even within your own state. I mean, that's what um, Ron DeSantis did in Florida, uh, and there are a lot of things that you can do if you have a Republican trifecta. Um, and then at the even smaller local level. If, if you have enough support in your town, if you are, if you can get the mayor seat or simply just be on town council, uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to say like, no, we, uh, we're going to reject housing migrants um, because the, the, gov the federal government, before they place migrants into your town, they do have to get permission from, um, you know, depending on the local town politics, they have to get permission from those officials. And if they find out about it, number one, because they do a lot of this stuff in secret. Uh, and if you decide to say no, then then that's it. Then you don't have a migration problem in your town. So uh, nope. these local positions are really important. So get on your town council, um, get, you know, run for mayor if you want to. Uh, I think that'd be great. Uh, we have there's a, somebody who is distinctly, you know, uh, um, I'm not doxing him. He's 100 percent pro-white. Um, uh, we have a Oklahoma County Commissioner, uh, Judd Blevins. He's doing a great job, uh, and you know that he's not—he doesn't identify with us personally or anything like that. But he has come under a lot of heat because he was doxxed at uh, for being a, at present at Charlottesville in 2017, and so the Enid, Oklahoma, uh, what do they call it? <laughs> Social—it's the Enid Social Justice Committee or something. Oh goodness. Uh, I think I think that's what they named themselves, but they decided to start circulating around a recall petition immediately. And the guy's doing a great job. I mean, he's holding his own. He was elected um, as you know through normal processes, uh, and it was the first time that the voters had been given a choice uh, in I don't remember exactly how many years. And uh, because the person that he ran against was just an incumbent. Um, and so when the voters were given the choice, they chose him and he was elected and he's doing a great job and he's not backing down. So and that's who the people want. So it's uh, it's totally feasible to get in uh, these positions where you can actually make a difference. And if you're approachable. Uh, and if you're doing a good job, being a good member of your community and making life actually better for the people around you, then you will get elected and you'll be respected and you'll be able to do, uh, you know, these wonderful things. We have a lot of we have a lot of stuff in prep for I probably have seven things in prep for local government, school boards, things like that. The problem is <laughs> the reason it's taking so long and I expect it won't come out until the website comes out is because naturally every state is different. So, you know, for some states you can make very broad groupings and then others such as Pennsylvania, whose school board system is very unique uh, with, uh, you can be a member of both parties 
but it's not clear if you can be a member of none. I'm still having to figure things like this out, so I haven't been able to release any of this yet, but there's a whole bunch of it in the works. Right, yeah. I mean, as for, it doesn't matter if you vote, if you run as a Republican or if you run as a Democrat or run as an independent. I mean, there are there are pro-whites on both sides, and this is something that we try to stay neutral on at White Papers. I mean, it's generally the Republican Party now is going to be the one that's going to focus on immigration. And I think that that, you know, makes the biggest impact in pro-white policy, obviously. <laughs> uh, it's easier to have pro-white policy if you are a white majority in your country. Um, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that the Democrat Party left behind when they had their ideological shift from protecting the working class to uh, protecting the intersectional uh, immigrants, blacks in wheelchairs. So um, they, you know, the, a lot of those, how many people, what, what was it, like 58 million people did not vote in the 2020 election. Um, and uh, I think, I don't remember how many of those were whites, but uh, they were the most the the non-voting independents are the most likely group to oppose things like mm -hmm. extending citizenship to illegals. They mm -hmm. these people are incredibly underserved, which is why a very large chunk of them stay home. Right. So yeah, there are people who don't feel like either party represents them. So it's time to, you know, <laughs> take a take a look at your own policy priorities and decide which uh, is a better fit for you and go ahead and run. So we are approaching very rapidly 2024, which is a presidential election year. America, I think, is going to be quite the circus. And I'm wondering what are your thoughts about how Things are going to change in the election year. What are some of the things that you're going to be doing in the election year at White Papers? Um, I don't have, we don't have any plans. Naturally, if there's some sort of breaking development, it, it politically we'll cover it. However, we have decided at this stage, you never know what may happen. Someone could come completely out of left field and surprise us totally. But I have no plans, and Sine and I have talked about this, certainly not going to endorse a candidate at this stage. We have said many of the things Trump is saying are very interesting. Vivek has said some interesting things. He's also a literal example of the Great Replacement, but we'll move that aside for now. He said some very interesting things on stage in front of his fellow Indian, Nimarada Randhawa, which is Nikki Haley's real name. I love to remind people of that. It's like a tick of mine at this point. Um so there are no specific election plans per se, but there are, we have very large expansion plans. So I just yesterday finally started the release of the infographic series, which it, within less than 24 hours has been just the most incredible success. Um, tens of thousands of people have viewed those already, and we've had hundreds of new subscribers across all of the social media. Um, so that'll be expanding, and there are going to be animated videos in the same style. And the website's going to come out at the start of the year. And, um, you know, we are beginning to put together plans for our first actual policy conference. So the, 2024 is going to be just the most incredibly busy year. 
That's right. Yeah. One of the things that we've been like, I've just been on the, we've been on the phone uh, for the past few weeks, quite a lot, uh, just getting ideas for workshops because people have been asking for uh, places to get together to learn these practical skills. Um, you know, we know people who are campaign managers. We know people who have got elected to school board offices. We know people who fund school board elections and, you know, other, we know people who are in various PACs. And so it's all a matter of how do we pull this together and, you know, create some kind of uh, hands-on workshop for people. Uh, and so that's the, one of the things that we've been planning in the last uh, few weeks. And uh, yeah, so you can look forward to that in the new year. But yeah, a lot of short video content, just things uh, that, stuff that's approachable and interesting uh, to make these policies look realistic. And um, <laughs> because they are. Uh, and then once you once people see that there are possibilities and uh, that this stuff is achievable within their lifetimes, then you're going to get more and more people um, coming out and uh, yeah, and, and doing what needs to be done. So we've been growing really, really fast. Um, and I get, to, I, I feel kind of weird in this podcast. I get to uh, wear two hats today because I also, uh, you know, it, it makes me so happy to be able to combine the two things that I love the most, uh, you know, the first of which is, you know, with being with Countercurrents as a program director, it's given me huge opportunities to just meet a ton of people. Uh, and, you know, even doing this before I came on uh, to Countercurrents to help with the formation of the Homeland Institute, you know, Greg, you've been one of my best mentors forever. Uh, and you were the person Thank who red pilled me. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you wrote the restoring white homelands piece, which, you know, kind of gave me at least the inspiration to want to come up with some very, very practical policy alternatives. And then I get to work with James too. Um, and my cat wants to say hi, uh, and make these things into re a reality. So take the metapolitical and make that political. So I, I, there's a lot of fun stuff going on. And so, uh, yeah, but definitely, hey, if you have questions, uh, please go ahead and donate. You are correct. We are doing a matching grant right now. And uh, so, yeah, if you'd love to hear what you guys have to say, head on over to Entropy and let us know. There is a question here from Pygmy King. I first saw the White Papers Policy website yesterday. It looks great. I like the professional quality infographics. This is what we need to win normies. It also reminded me a bit of Numbers USA. Just curious if White Papers Policy has been influenced at all by Numbers USA or considering Numbers approach, perhaps they're trying to take a different angle. What are your comments I'm, on that? I'm familiar with Numbers USA. They produce... Uh, they try to produce very even-handed immigration material. Some of it I've I have uh, I've referenced in the past. They do very interesting stuff where they'll you know one day Numbers USA will publish uh, they'll publish an article denouncing the hate of immigrants, and then two days later they'll publish an article about how taking anyone from the third world is just the worst possible idea in the world. You know, Numbers USA always, you, they keep alive that famous gumball video, the, that gentleman who was on stage. Um, unfortunately, I don't remember the 
the his name, but so, so numbers US, USA does some very interesting things. Um, I wouldn't say it was a direct inspiration. The prof- professionalism in general, though, is something that I have a, an immense appreciation for. And one of the reasons that I started white papers, frankly, is because a lot of I, I felt that the movement, while having a great many good voices and some very fine examples of professionalism lacked it in some other senses. So a lot of actually what Cyan and I do is, you know, when we're planning a new series or when we're planning, you know, I was sending her infographics yesterday, <laughs> putting these things together. And, and you'd be amazed about the minutia we discuss and the in the wording and things just because we want this to be presented in a way where people can read it and they can understand it and there's no sort of needless goofy wording that is you know no subculture wording no and it's fine if you have a subculture but your subculture has to stay in that appropriate environment right we're not appealing to a subculture we're attempting to appeal to the the massive white people you know we even do work on britain and ireland and mainland europe so the professionalism is a key right i think it's roy beck at numbers usa who did the gumball Ah. presentation i saw him years and years ago at the cherokee town club in atlanta do that presentation and i thought he was an extremely effective speaker about these issues and it was really rather hopeful at the time because during that period, I think this was, this was during the Obama administration, there was very little uh, inkling of any kind of uh, change in, in, in policy uh, about immigration. And I think people like that laid the groundwork for a lot of what we saw later when we had Adios America come out, when we had Trump come out and suddenly uh, run competing on the issue of immigration. So, yeah, he's a, he's a very effective uh, advocate. Uh, let me ask another question here. Rules of Reality writes in with five U.S. dollars. Thank you. I think our ruling regime read George Friedman's The Next 100 Years and see it as a prediction they must bring to pass. Redux America imports South Africa. SA. I guess South America establishes space-based total global hegemony only to have to fight a massive civil war with Mexico's heartland colony on our soil in 2060. Insane. James, do you have any thoughts on the next 100 years book? And, J- and David, I know you've got uh, probably some thoughts on this. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm not actually familiar with it. Well, David, do you want to say a few words about it? We've, uh, I think we published yeah. a review of that, or somebody wrote a review of this at CounterCurrents. Yeah, so the whole book is a lot of hit and miss. And the author does admit that there's going to be a lot of miss, but he does make a lot of predictions correctly. Like he said that Poland and Turkey would become superpowers. Poland is on its way to becoming stronger. He did predict a wind down in the global war on terror. I'd say it just had a lull and there's a huge setback. But he predicted a lot in the past. He tried to like create a methodology of based upon... His whole way of thinking is that leaders are constrained. They actually, we, we think that, you know, Merkel and Biden have all these options. They actually don't. They have a very limited number of, of options and they're kind of forced down these paths. I, I don't, I'm not as rigid as he is. Also, because you can't discount human malice and stupidity. 
but generally speaking, that is a good thing. Anyone who's played any PC strategy games, and I do think we need to take video gaming seri seriously because of how it trains people to be good tacticians and thinkers, is that you, you really are constrained. You can't just do whatever you want or you can try and there'll be horrible results. So there is, in a weird way, people do get channeled into things. And his idea was space. That was a thing. I think he mentioned like robot suits. I think we're on the, not robot suits, but I think we're on the way to something where it might be like mech. You don't know what's going to happen. I think drone warfare is taking off. So it, that's kind of adjacent to that. And I think too, uh, he, the, the big thing he made for, that's important to our politics that he said that eventually due to birth rates and demographics, he basically, I forget the sentence, but he said something like demographics is destiny is that Western nations would actually be bribing immigrants to come. They'd be paying them. They'd be competing with other Western nations to be invaded and replaced. That is happening to some extent because in San Diego County and elsewhere in California, the government is paying lavish benefits to migrants to house them. Now, this isn't because we're desperate for warm bodies to make tortillas. It's out of malice to replace people and genocide us and get cheap money for labor instead of paying white people a proper wage like Henry Ford did. And it's weird thing is that the liberals, the, I think he's important. I think the article, I, I remember reading it, did go into how he is important because he's kind of a crystal ball. He's going to mean these things with reality because people treat him as a prophet. That's come out with Ukraine because his idea was that Russia, I think the author said like the Russia, Russia will split. It can split. We have to split. And they took this as we have to split it. This is great. That's why Ukraine has been mismanaged. They think that they can simply draw it out and win. And no, they need to do something decisive. They need it. If they were serious about Ukraine, they would have increased shell production exponentially, decisively. And liberals can't do that because they're not decisive. In fact, the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, my people, produced something like 12, more, 12 times more shells in World War I per year than the glorious American Empire. Now, American shells are more fancy than Austro-Hungarian shells, but that's just embarrassing. We've been completely deindustrialized. So all these workers, like I know they need stuff for old people because old people don't have kids, but factories, are they going to work in the factories that do not exist in America because China took them because, thank you, Kissinger, we were deindustrialized? No. So this, in a way, they're the liberal, these neoliberals take him as a prophet almost, and some of the stuff is just wrong. Like Russia might be more stable than we think it is because their whole culture. I think he was blindsided by culture. He doesn't get that. He, they, these people assume that everyone wants freedom and all this. Russia's modus operandi is to be under an exploitive czar. That is how they live. That's how they've done it for centuries. This is a huge, their current thing with Putin, even though Putin is, is, is bad, is that this, at least this isn't, you know, Bolshevism. So this is a, by, by Russian standards, this isn't that bad. Or at least they are thinking, you know, this could be way worse. Like China. China is willing to endure dystopian totalitarianism because they remember all the times when things were a lot worse, when they were divided and there were just dead bodies everywhere. Same with Russia. They'd rather go with terrible mediocrity, dysfunction, and poverty as long as it isn't Bolshevism. Or it's a slightly nicer czar than some of the czars they had. So they're really overestimating, they really are projecting their own mindset onto the Russians. And we're dealing with a foreign people here. And the same thing with immigration. He's, he, he thinks that everything's about economics. He doesn't see culture. 
And so he does think that eventually, it's very strange how he, we have this straight from the horse's mouth where his opinion is that there'll be so many Mexicans in Latin America that Mexico will start giving, pretending like they have rights. So I actually have seats in the Mexican parliament. And while they may, this might be purely symbolic, they might have, may or may not have actual voting power. That would be a dangerous step for a step towards basically annexing the, the Southwest. And this is important because a lot of annexation, what happens is that politics follows culture and demographics. So if the cultural reality is, and the demographic reality is that California is Mexico, the politics will catch up. It might take a few decades, but it will come. And it's very strange that this guy is saying this because we say it. This is the perennial example of liberal saying stuff. Which, if we said it, it would be a far-right conspiracy theory and hate-mongering, but no, because he says it, and it's either – he doesn't say it's a good thing. He just says it's neutral and inevitable. Well, that's just good. That's just you know good academic scholarship. Well, if I say that, that's just extremism and hate. Right. We have another question here from Rules of Reality. Apply. Five U.S. dollars. Thank you so much. Another headwind is alien CEOs. My big tech alumni group sent out a plan to import 75,000 Afghans and 75,000 Ukrainians in 2021, give them handouts and products and spread them out across America. It was a cartel of corporations and almost all CEOs are South and East Asian. How to fight them? Musk not aligned. My first question is 75,000 Afghans? What good are Afghans in tech? But this is an interesting question. James, do you have any thoughts about we definitely have a problem with South and East Asian CEOs. These people are taking over. And I'm not so crazy about that fact. They certainly are doing a takeover of the American conservative movement, for instance. Yes, it's amazing. One of the things that I find most amazing about people from the Indian subcontinent is how the moment they walk in the door, they immediately begin saying exactly what they want changed, how they want it changed, and how quick they want it changed. Like, no, no, no. I know you've lived here for 300 years, white man, but your opinion does not matter because I have arrived and my name is Ramaswamy. Um, and it, I, I do find that quite remarkable. I also find that quite concerning. I don't know that there is any sort of unique approach to dealing with that i it, it's sort of wrapped up in this entire debate that we have to have inside the american public which is that there are still a lot of people now this number is decreasing actually quite rapidly but there are still a lot of people in the united states who have this conception that if you come in through the to, to channel trump a bit the big beautiful door in the wall you know, you show up with your visa stuck in your passport, your green card, then you're fine. And everything you do is somehow legitimated by this document issued by a state that doesn't care for its own population. And Americans are act very slowly beginning to abandon that and that the abandonment is increasing, but we still have a lot of work to do there. So I would say that the, you know, the, the delegitimization of this idea that legal immigration is somehow superior is how we combat this. I don't know that there's a very specific way to target the Indian CEO demographic um, in any sort of individual manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Legal immigrants are more threatening than illegal ones 
eventually because they actually have legal status. And high quality immigrants are far more threatening than people who are basically able to only do stoop seasonal labor. And yet there are many people on the Normicon right who they just they just are thrilled, thrilled with all these these smiling, amiable brown people with credentials from South Asia. They think that you know these people these people will make America a better place. And uh, it's actually, they're actually much more threatening. So yeah, absolutely. There's this, there's this sort of goofy, I really do think that a lot of sort of middle of the road establishment, I'm not talking about average voters, establishment Republicans look at these people and they think, ah, those are people who are going to have to pay in some of the top income tax brackets. They're going to be on right. our side in a couple of years. And that's not how that works. <laughs> right, right. And, and, don't and, care about income tax bracket. Yeah. And finally, brown people that we don't have to fear. Uh, and, and of course, but the, the fear is you know, just riots and stuff like that. No, they're not going to riot. They're going to, they're going to infiltrate your, your company take it over and bust it out and fill it up with more people like them. That's and then facilitate fair. the riots in the streets by funny Black Lives Matter. Yeah, These are yeah. basically the officers of the, of, of the foot soldiers, which, and they're much more dangerous. It's because, you know, officers wear their spiffy uniforms and they're in the corporate boardroom. They're the brain and the riders are, the, you know, the average migrant that you think of is, is a brawn and the brain's more dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I was just looking up for a second. I couldn't find it. But when we were talking about Indian CEOs, uh, you know, well, the first response to preventing that would be limiting H-1B visas. Um, and it reminded there was a lawsuit that was filed by progressives for immigration reform. But the problem is that they changed their name. So I couldn't find them. They changed it to something really uh, kind of silly. It was just Institute for Sound Public Policy. So it took me a while to find it. Um, and uh, I don't know, I guess they couldn't call themselves. Name. I know, right? Well, it doesn't mean anything. And that's why I couldn't remember what it was. <laughs> uh, but I guess they can't call themselves progressives anymore because progressives means open borders. But um, the reason I was looking for it is because they filed a charge with the Department of Justice saying that uh, you know, these recruiting companies uh, like P33, it was Tech Chicago, uh, and so on were hiring American or were hiring H-1Bs uh, over American citizens. And, uh, you know, I, we know that this happens generally for financial reasons, but um, they were one of the things that uh, one of the limitations on issuing H-1B visas is that your company has to uh, market the job to the general uh, American public first. Uh, and the idea behind it is that if you can't find enough specialized or qualified workers uh, in America, then you can outsource to India, whatever, uh, maybe now Afghan uh, and so on. But the these recruiting companies and were soliciting um, 
outside, you know, only to people who would qualify for the H-1B visa. So to people in other countries, but did not open their uh, recruiting to American citizens. Uh, and so I was just trying to find uh, updates on that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's a very practical way to stop the Indian CEO problem is to stop the issuance of H-1B visas stop immediately. Stop the Indian recruitment, right. Indian recruitment <laughs> system. I mean, I don't know about America specifically. I know in Britain, it's very common knowledge that all of these employment recruitment firms are owned by Indians and Pakistanis. Like this is, <laughs> this is an ethnic racket. That's very interesting. Folks, if you would like to send a question, comment, or donation through Entropy, please do so. Entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents without the hyphen. I have a few small donations here to th thank people for. Northern Power has donated uh, a bell and four more bells. I appreciate that. Also, we have another $5 donation from the Rules of Reality. Thank you, White Papers Policy Institute. You guys, you guys are doing great work and are going to be a major force in the battle for our homeland that we are going to win. Keep up the outstanding work. Well, thank you for the donation. Well, thank you. Yeah. All righty. So do we have any more questions or comments here? Let me just make sure that we're not overlooking anybody. The rules of reality. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say hi to Pygmy King and Sunshine. I ah. see you. Yeah. <laughs> and that was Bubbles, the cat, by the way. And yes, okay. she was staring into your soul. So George Friedman, this is rules of reality, says George Friedman also essentially claims that geography is some sort of ultimate the decision maker, not humans. In one sentence, he says, who is president doesn't matter. In the next, he says it is critical. Yes, he's seen as a prophet. His protege, Peter Zion, is unhinged, the ultimate pop pyramid cultist. Yeah, I don't know much about Zion. Uh, he, I think I've we've reviewed of one of his books at Countercurrents. So Morris DeCamp reviewed one of his books. So, I've heard of him. I don't know much about him either. Um, yeah. I'm also I'm also not particularly prone to the ch choppy utterings of <laughs> Friedman. Um, Cyan will know about my general visceral reaction to libertarianism, and I know people have some occasionally have trouble labeling him because of things he said here or there. But I'm I am uh, I'm generally not prone to Friedman. What a great job to be a futurist, a prophet, you know, to get your books published by major publishers and endorsed by ministers and presidents. I, I think of somebody like Yuval Hariri. These these books, these books are, you know, they're they're attempts to shape reality while talking about what's happening, and that's uh, it, they're they're sneaky forms of legislation basically disguised as as description or predictions i think i i would agree with that generally what's funny is that the conspiracy theorists like us are still always more right than they are so oh yeah their job <laughs> you one of the first things i ever noticed about these politics and and uh, is that uh, you get you get addicted to the dopamine hit of being constantly correct all of the time. And I don't mean that in sort of the 
granular sense of, you know, every choppy utterance I make is somehow spot on. But, you know, you see something in the media or you have a thought and then you see a behavior out in the wild and you're just like, oh, there we go. Right again. You know, every damn time. Yes. Every damn time, Greg. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some other issues then. I am a proponent of secessionism. I love to talk about downsizing the USA, Splitsville, USA, national divorce. Uh, let's move our county into the neighboring state. Let's move our neighborhood out of Atlanta and make it a separate city, stuff like that. Have you done any work that deals with secessionist movements and issues either in the United States or Europe? Um, not in depth. I'm generally, I have, I think you and I would have sort of deeply divergent opinions on this. However, there are some, uh, there are some areas that would uh, intersect, for example, Puerto Rico. I know in one of the great repatriation pieces, I firmly recommend that Puerto Rico be uh, ejected from the care of the United States and all Puerto Ricans in the mainland be, uh, you know, they're not technically U.S. citizens. They're U.S. nationals. So um, they'd have to go. Yeah, exactly. And believe it or not, that that's 10 percent of the population of Connecticut. Are Puerto Ricans. Correct. There are several other states, actually. I wish I could remember the numbers. I used to remember all of these numbers off the top of my head before these darn articles just got <laughs> so long, um, or so numerous, rather. But there are instances where doing things like uh, ejecting Puerto Rico would make very significant demographic distance, uh, differences. Mm -hmm. What about other overseas U.S. territories? Would, would that have any positive demographic impacts as well? Do we need American Samoa or the U.S. Virgin Islands, things like that? Uh, no, definitely not. And uh, getting, uh, you know, removing these territories from American sovereignty would change, you know, it wouldn't change the overall demographics of the United States. However, it would change the demographics rad radically of very particular areas. I think uh -huh. of another one of these countries that's in a goodness. What's the word for freedom of association is the term with the United States is uh, the Marshall Islands. So mm -hmm. everyone, everyone who lives in the Marshall Islands is uh, allowed to come and settle permanently in the United States whenever they want. Also, mm -hmm. as an American, you can go there whenever you want. Not that anyone does. But yeah, <laughs> and an example of this with the Marshall Islands is there's this town in I believe it's Arkansas, and I can't remember the name of the town, unfortunately, where they chain migrate to because their family's already there and they settle there quite literally in the tens of thousands. And the the white population that is native to the town has been reduced to a minority because of this chain migration of Marshallese. And there are. um other examples of this with people from Palau and uh, people from the Marianas Islands. So, you know, it, getting rid of association with these places and telling their citizens they have to go 
would radically reverse demographic change in particular geographic areas. Yeah. What about Hawaii? There aren't really any. Main, there are some mainland Hawaiians in California, but mm -hmm. uh, most of them actually still live in Hawaii. The mm -hmm. Hawaiians would probably want this. They have a, the native racial ethnic Hawaiians have quite a large, prominent uh, secessionist movement among themselves. So th that would sort of be a question for them. Mm -hmm. uh, are there particular parts of Hawaii that would be more Hawaiian? Uh, maybe parts of the state might leave and other parts might stay in the United States? As far as I'm aware, the, it varies significantly by island. I don't know yeah. the specifics on that, but I do know that there are some islands which are more Hawaiian than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a quick question. Do you favor or think it's viable to do a, de a devolution of power? Because in one of the recent polls, uh, polls by the Homeland Institute, we found that all levels of government are deeply unpopular. Nobody feels cared for, but lo but local and county governments, like cities and counties, are they're the least unpopular. And I was looking at your article about California, where you know amongst California amongst the white population, there's only a four point difference in liberal and conservative. So if there is a de-evolution of power in California to the cities and counties, well, some of those cities and counties are white, and a lot of them are also white and Republican, like up in the Northeast. So if not for a full-on national divorce, do you favor more de-evolution of power to the states, the cities, and the counties? I am generally in favor of uh, devolution. I think localism is a very good thing. In fact, California is actually having this fight right now. The state government is attempting to, by the fight, I mean it's it's sort of counties and cities versus the state government. The state government is doing this series of programs where they're attempting to build masses of housing. And of course, they're attempting to do it in single family neighborhoods. Single family neighborhoods are overwhelmingly white. So these counties and these cities are in this massive legal battle currently with Sacramento attempting to overturn this legislation. Um, some of the cities that surround Los Angeles are really getting into it. They're sort of outright telling the state government to go screw itself. Um, posting their own local police outside of these construction zones and stuff is actually quite interesting. So there's definitely a there's definitely a will for it, of course. But to do that devolution, you have to get the you have to get the the state government on board or force them. Again, I I do think that if these counties in California, these cities worked together a bit more instead of haphazard singular lawsuits, they'd probably be able to accomplish quite a bit. Local governments are very poor at working together. <laughs> They'd be great if they got better at this. It definitely sounds interesting. And I think maybe we need to kick some of these libertarian habits of being 50 cats that need to be herded. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as for moving state lines, um, I'm aware of things like the movement for Western Oregon to join Idaho. And I know Idaho is all on board for it. And I know all the, the, the counties in those areas are all on board for it. It would make sense for the eastern part of Oregon to let them or yeah, to let them go. But I, I I don't think it's going to happen just because liberals are sort of 
the most incredibly petty group of people in the world. And they really do love to make you suffer in some ways. And I think that they, uh, the, the, I think Portland or Eugene is actually the capital of Oregon, isn't it? They're going to hold on with your life and they have to consent to this border movement. So I think they're, we're going to see quite a rapid increase in calls for certain state lines to be redrawn. I'm just skeptical that the, the blue states that would be giving up these areas will ever do it. What about blue state secessionist movements? Something like Cal Exit, for instance. I, I wrote a piece way back when, I guess in 2016, after Trump got elected in praise of Cal Exit, because if California left the union, that would take, what, 52, 54 solidly blue electoral votes out of the presidential electoral equation, uh, which, of course, things would be more GOP. That doesn't necessarily mean they'd get any better. It would also take a huge number of legal and illegal non-whites, a very large percentage of them actually would leave the union. And that might give the rest of the country a little bit more time to turn things around, get pro, give pro-whites a bit more time to turn things around, just because it would be a big setback to the rate of the Great Replacement. What are your thoughts on that? I'm generally, personally, I'm not, I'm not in favor of that. I also, I also don't think it's practical, practicable, goodness, I can't speak English, from the sense that uh, whites in California, in the entire country, frankly, view the entire United States quite justifiably as our nation state. And I have never, I have never seen significant evidence that they'd be willing to give that up. Now, that wouldn't matter if the, if the, non-white populations, which are damn near 70% of the state now, were in favor of it. However, non-white populations in the United States don't become geographically married to areas. I was even surprised by this when I was looking into African Americans, because I was expecting to find some sort of connection to the local areas they live in, because, you know, you all, you, you always get them in their darn rap videos talking about Chicago and in the D, which is what they call Detroit. And no, actually, the, the polling indicates that these populations are highly, at least emotionally, transient. They don't care. Um, they, I don't think they're ever going to be motivated to say, oh, yeah, we'd breaking off from the United States would be great. They, <laughs> they have no reason to invest in this. That's right. And a lot of them are, are recent immigrants as well. And if you just cancel, for example, uh, one of the data points that you found was that if you uh, just cancel green cards and uh, work visas, you would remove 45% of those immigrants. Um, oh, yeah. California could be made into a majority white state again and inside like five years. And the, mm. state the state government on its own could do this if it wanted to. I mean, they're number one, they're capable of the state government's capable of passing E-Verify and the state government is also capable of referring every single naturalized felon to a federal court to be denaturalized. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's not that there are impossibilities. And I I I prefer 
that the white Californians get to keep their state <laughs> and that state gets to stay in the country. Um, as for uh, California could probably survive as a sovereign state. I just don't ever see there being the political will for such a thing. Well, there was a great deal of whining and butthurt after Trump got elected. In oh, California. goodness. Yes. And there was a lot of talk about Cal exit. And I thought, you know, if a red state were proposing to leave the union, these people would be screaming for a nuclear war. But if they decide to take their toys and leave, then it's okay. And so triggering blue state secession would be really the only way to make secession work, at least the first time. Uh, but David, you said that you saw some polling about attitudes towards Texas leaving the country uh, by non-Texans. And rather few actually would resort to any kind of forcible measures to keep a state like Texas in the union. Do you recall those numbers by any chance? Yes. Yeah, so it was by Survey USA, and it was quoted by Tex, uh, the Texas uh, Independence Movement, which I cited in my latest article. What I found was that they asked what, how many people, they asked what, what the response should be if certain states left. And the numbers that would say, like, attack, well, first of all, the states that they asked for were Texas, California, and Hawaii. And the number who said that they should attack these states if they were to secede was 6 to 7%, depending on, upon the state. And it was, I, I forget the exact numbers, it was like 20 to 30% said just doing an, an embargo, which I think would backfire pretty quickly because these, these states tend to have, that would do more damage to the remaining United States than to the states that's seceding. So overall, it's like you can easily leave because what are they going to do? They aren't going to attack you. And I think with all the international drama, they definitely couldn't attack. They're, they're playing whack-a-mole with too many moles and recruitment numbers are low. The military is a disaster. You have a lot of state militaries actually with the National Guard and a very armed citizenry. So what will the 6% do? At some point, war comes down to the will to power. And at some point, you know, if everyone just doesn't care, you can just pass progressively splinter apart and just be like, do, what are you going to do about it, bro? Do something. I, I dare you. You won't because everyone, everyone's just kind of over it. I am really curious to, to find out, you know, maybe this should be a follow-up poll, um, how many of those people who are advocating for secession, like how far do you want to take it? Like the first uh, Homeland Institute poll uh, that came out um, and analyzed, uh, you know, attitudes towards boycotts for either being woke or racist. And then what I liked about that is that there were follow-up questions to determine, well, okay, would you actually, uh, you know, how far are you willing to go to actually enforce that boycott? And so, yeah, I mean, my question, there may be a lot of people in Texas or in California. Um, I, I'm focusing on Texas because that's the subject that we're talking about right now. Um, there may be a lot of people who are in favor of secession, but how many of those um, people are, are actually serious about it or understand, you know, uh, what the implications of that would be? Uh, I mean, just industrially, a lot, a lot of major airlines are headquartered in Texas. Um, you know, there's a lot of industry there. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I would be really, really curious to find out what, uh, how far people will take it. Yeah. 
there might be a uh, follow-up poll. It'd be difficult to target these specific states. I can definitely target what people's reaction would be to a state leaving. I would have to ask, like, in the theoretical, if your state were to see what would you do, and some states might not care, but I we could see what the Texas results are. And it wouldn't be very informative because there wouldn't be that many, but it would be somewhat suggestive. Right. Overall, I'm definitely in favor of uh, secession of the non-white population back to their countries of origin, though. And, uh, you, you know, one of the people in the chat just mentioned that children born in the USA of first-generation immigrants often are more nationalistic about their ancestral origins. This is this is true. Um, I don't remember the exact st statistics on it, but there are a lot of usually, uh, you know, the younger generation, the first generation immigrants, of course, they come here and uh, they're coming here for a reason. Right. They're coming here for economic purposes. There are job opportunities. Their life is going to be better when they come to the United States. And then the children, second you know, and third generation they, uh, you know, get a lot of the same progressive anti-white programming, uh, too. And they also feel kind of out of place because America is the extension. It's the political expression of a white population. Um, and they're looking at their background saying, wait, wait a second, I'm, you know, I'm ethnically Mexican. Uh, why don't I identify with uh, other Mexicans or Mexican citizens? And yeah, there's definitely a call, a call home, I guess. Yeah, we covered that. This is in the repatriation series. There right. was the, I think the last one, Great Repatriation and the Willing, even among third generation Hispanics in the United States, 70% of them don't identify as American and they either identify as, as, you know, a racial Latino or with their country of origin, 33% of them feel very different from uh, typical Americans read typical as <laughs> white Americans. And these, these aren't uh, really in any meaningful term settled populations. They just have no incentive to turn around and go at the moment. And our entire the entire project of white papers is to is to convince white people that we just have to give uh, all these people a little push, and they'll they'll walk out the door. I actually want to piggyback right. off that a little bit if you don't mind. So I think right now, so they're basically here for they basically just jumped out of their mother here, and there's it's wealthier here. Well, what happens if the economy crashes? I think we're looking at a very strong recession right now. And so at that point, they might as well just leave if it's really bad. And also if there's increasing ethnic violence because white people aren't violent, regardless of what they, all the propaganda, it's usually minorities. And so there's a lot of minority on minority violence, like black on Mexican, uh, blacks attacking Asians. So as the white population gets lower, I think the economy is just going to go down anyways for other reasons like the national debt. But America gets more violent, less rich. Why stay? I think that might push them back in a way they're going to basically push themselves back. Not that we should be passive and wait for that to happen. But another big thing I, I see happening is that these second and third generation immigrants are very entitled. They want to be treated like special snowflakes. And what happens when everyone is diverse? For example, in college admissions, technically affirmative action was struck down. It really wasn't because there's a humongous loophole about 
magical essays about your special background, I've, which will be explained. I noticed that too. I wrote an article um, for a different news site uh, at the time, actually, and uh, I noticed that too. Was like, oh, this is a neat little thing about being able to mention your ethnic background and how it affected your life in your essay. Suddenly, everyone is going to be forced to is going to be told to write an essay about their background. Uh, convenient Supreme Court. Yeah, they were complete liars about that opinion. They tried to say that they overturned affirmative action. They absolutely didn't. They simply gave colleges a way to to continue doing it more discreetly. But these are these people are masters of deception and disobeying court orders. And this was simply wind up before the Supreme Court again. They simply refused to be decisive about this, like Carl Schmidt would complain about. What happens is that these these second and third generation immigrants, they'll be treated so special. But what happens when, like in college admissions, everyone's diverse. Every like white people, white the what the, the youth is increasingly non-white. Even white people, they can be a sexual minority, they can identify as pansexual or transsexual or whatever. And there's very you can't really investigate that without getting into litigation and trouble and open yourself up to a lawsuit. So you have to take on their word. You can also have a mental disorder. Again, you can't really exp- verify that or, or else you get into HIPAA violations and, and potentials for a lawsuit. So at that point, everyone can write the little sob, their little diversity story about how they're a special snowflake, even white people. And at some point, everyone has a place in this diverse totem pole. Now, yeah, the mentally challenged, disabled, pansexual white person is probably at the bottom of the totem hole, totem hole but... All these non-whites might be competing. And of course, certain people might be at the top always suspiciously. And so at some point, they're no longer special. They're just run of the mill. And so they don't have a leg up like they used to on getting, you know, free admission, scholarships, jobs, because now everyone's a magical special snowflake. And therefore, nobody's a special, a special snowflake. Yeah, we're already, we're actually already seeing this on the college front. You know, there's the the very famous HBCUs, historic black colleges and universities that get billions of dollars in funding every year from federal and state governments. And I remember back in 2021, uh, this uh, Hispanic institutions caucus or something uh, in DC has begun to, uh, they have begun fighting back against all of the funding that the Biden administration gives historic black colleges and universities because they want the money. Uh, we're already beginning to see this. And of course, you know, the, the white man is just kind of sitting on the sideline wondering, why isn't it 1970 anymore? It's like, well, <laughs> this is why. I have another question Thank you from Rules of Reality. CMU, I don't know what that stands for. I guess some sort of university. It's the model for South Asian colonization. Their Indian CS, computer science, I guess, department head, embraces their diversity plan to coddle people of color with essentially ac- academic admissions and babysitting. The department is largely Asian and he embraces diversity, which will ultimately freeze out all whites. We must sue to the ground now. I honestly do think that affirmative action is used by these parasitic, aggressive minorities to basically eliminate white people. So what'll happen, and this the Jews used to do this, they they were the masters of this, but Asians are quick studies and they they're playing the same playbook. You get an Asian running a department, and 
they will be looking for a faculty person. And if there are too many whites in the, in the mix, they'll say, well, we need more diversity, right? But diversity never works both ways. You know, you might have a majority Asian department, but adding another Asian doesn't make, it makes it even more diverse. I saw this, you know, in my brief academic career where I was working at a place that had a disproportionate number of Asians, of East Asians, uh, I should say, but adding another East Asian always made it more diverse somehow. Uh, and so w- once you have one of these groups that's campaigning to basically take over, they just have to selectively use affirmative action and appeals to diversity to uh, eliminate anybody who's not them. And suddenly in the name of diversity, you just get a department that's more and more South Asian or East Asian or Jewish. And people should be able to call people on that. They should be able to sue over that. Or better yet, just eliminate these these criteria entirely and uh, just demand that people be hired on the basis of merit. Of course, we wouldn't have to worry about this if white people had a country of our own. Yeah, of course. In the uh, in the interim between taking our country back, which I do firmly believe we're going to do, and uh, and dealing with these policies, I do think that lawfare is something that we should be doing a lot more. I think one of the things that holds our movement back from doing lawfare is the money aspect. We have to raise more funds, which is why it's important that you support institutions. We have to raise more funds to be able to pay lawyers to do the full-time work because, you know, just like anyone else with our politics, once you associate, you're stuck there. Um, So uh, if we want to do lawfare on these things, we have to keep uh, building the institutions and putting together the the funding apparatuses to do it. But we really, it is something we should uh, have groups that focus on focus on this because it is sort of the interim uh, interim fight yeah yeah uh i think there are huge economic opportunities so i think tens of millions of dollars can be won uh in these these kinds of suits and it would be nice if we had uh ideologically motivated lawyers profiting from that and then taking some of their their winnings and basically living on that and using that to do pro bono work for white people who are being persecuted or persecuted for their beliefs or subjected to lawfare for their beliefs. I think that would be very valuable. And I have a project underway in 2024. I hope this comes to fruition where we're going to get some lawyers together in the United States to talk about a nationalist legal network because there are a lot of lawyers in our, in our movement. In fact, it's, oh, yeah, I know several, I could, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to name it, them, but I could count yeah. them on two hands. Yeah. It's, it's the profession that's most represented in our ranks, interestingly enough. And it would be nice to just uh, get these people together or some of these people together in a room and say, okay, how many do you know? And just create a network. Maybe we can b- begin with a uh, a network of referrals so that we know somebody who can practice law in all 50 states. That would be a nice thing to know. I, I don't think any such list exists yet, 
but that that would be very very helpful just as a starter and then Absolutely. just yeah um what is the name of that uh the lawyer the federalist society we basically need our own version of the federalist society which is all you know all of these lawyers and judges and legal academics we have to begin getting these people together yeah. yes absolutely but they need to actually not be like the federal society because the federal society are very weak-willed they're controlled opposition and their whole thing is well, natural positions they're just a fancy debate club and networking club they don't actually fight now every other liberal i sure i um well, i remember when i first began law school every every flavor of diversity had a little stand for their little student thing and there's several not you know non-ethnic liberal things like whatever and then you just had the federal society it was like 20 to 1 ratio and they simply exist because they have a an ill-deserved monopoly in law schools and they're complete they don't do anything all they do is debate and they allow libertarians and liberals to actually come in and subversively hijack them i saw a individual who was a hardcore leftist large friends libertarian basically tried to get a finger in this and they do not like nationalists. I won't go into my rant about that, but I was dismissed. And they don't know anything to talk amongst themselves. We want to actually act. So yes, we do need a federal society, but actually be the aggressive version. They are a complete right, an active society. Yeah, like a nationalist lawyers guild. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but we're instead of lime green. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are running out of time, so. Folks, if you have any final questions, uh, now is the time to speak. Speak now or forever hold your peace, or, or at least hold your peace until the next time we have white papers on. Uh, I'm just checking entropy. We have not gotten a single entropy question today, and that makes me sad. That makes the Come people on, at entropy sad. Come on, <laughs> folks. Okay, and we've definitely been getting some tips through Odyssey, and I very much appreciate that. I just want to be sure that we aren't. Uh, I find these donation, these donation things on D Live to be fascinating. These like diamonds, lemons, ninja, yeah, are, ninja gamings, I, don't, yeah. I don't know how to. I don't know how to conceptualize these amounts. <laughs> yeah. Well, there it's is a. It, it it is convertible into cash eventually. So, uh, I am going to cash out at the end of the year and add it to our total for the uh campaign yeah you know, yeah well while you're looking for uh you know any remaining questions i feel like i can't let a conversation about lawyers or lawyers guild go by without mentioning glenn allen and our friends over at the free expression foundation i think that this is you know i uh explicitly pro-white lawyers guild is also necessary but i think he's just glenn is so um it's just such a such a humble person and a worker bee um that i feel like it, you know he doesn't get promoted enough because he doesn't do self-promotion <laughs> so um you know we need to talk about it here but in case our listeners are unfamiliar um you know he did uh, he filed a lot of the motions to help people uh, through the Charlottesville lawsuits um, and has just been constantly fighting behind the scenes. Uh, he also helps people who were doxxed, uh, you know, myself included, uh, after I had my 
you know, incident with the John Brown Gun Club in Seattle. Uh, there's still some interesting stuff going on there um, that he's involved in. Uh, you know, he's always around to help people with, uh, you know, who are, it doesn't matter what group you're in, if you're in a group or not in a group, uh, Patriot Front, uh, you know, recently went to him with some legal issues too. But he's, you know, you were talking about a network that we need to go where you can call somebody up uh, who is pro-white and he'll point you in the right direction. And my first thought immediately went to Glenn Allen. I mean, so, uh, and that's freeexpressionfoundation.org. We did a, a co-sponsored event here for Roger Pearson last summer. I think it was, yeah, it was in June. No, no, actually it wasn't this June because we had our European conference. Um, it was last June. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I, you know, I would definitely, uh, that that's one place to start. We need more, but oh my gosh, if you are pro-white, if you are in any kind of trouble and you need help, uh, go to freeexpressionfoundation.org, get in touch with him. Uh, and if you would like to donate so that he can do that, <laughs> then go to freeexpressionfoundation.org. Uh, and yeah, we need to expand in all all of these avenues, you know, lawyers guild, uh, but yeah, he's a good place to start. Excellent. So let's wrap up James. Uh, how do people follow your work and can you give us a teaser of what might be coming out in the near future? Absolutely. So there is the Substack whitepapersinstitute.substack.com. And we also have the telegram, which is white papers as an H H U W. I H I T papers, white papers. I love that. I absolutely love that. And then, oh goodness, the Twitter handle I always forget, so I'm gonna have to look it up right now. Luckily, I always keep the Twitter open. That's at White Papers US. Um, the Twitter is actually growing quite well. But aside from the Substack articles, essentially everything also goes up on the Telegram, which is just about to pass. Uh, 10,000 subscribers. So I'm, we're very excited about that. The Telegram growth and the Substack growth, especially the Substack growth, actually, when you look at the trends, have been absolutely fantastic. And Cyan and I are always amazed <laughs> by the by the fantastic uh, quality of the supporters and interacting with them. As for what's to come, I did just start the infographic series, releasing infographics from numbers that we put in the articles. So I'm going to be doing a whole lot more of those. And uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of, uh, for the rest of the year, December, more cost of diversity articles like I did with the DHS piece. And sort of, you know, our movement and the conservatives as well have beaten the, you know, cost of welfare horse to death about 130,000 times over. Everyone knows welfare is expensive. Everyone knows diversity makes welfare expensive, but you know, a lot of people don't know what the Department of Homeland Security is spending. A lot of people don't know what the Department of Education is spending. It's it's tens of billions of dollars on these populations. So I am going through these things and in, in revealing that level of cost of diversity. I also did one for Britain uh, last week and some of their government services. So that's uh, that's a lot of what's coming up. Right. And you get, with all of that material, too, comes 
uh, PDFs, brochures, uh, more letter writing campaigns uh, and things so that we can take this information, condense it into a way uh, that you can uh, use to contact your representatives. Uh, somebody mentioned in the chat earlier, uh, phone call blast. I think that's a great idea. Uh, yes, we wanna do that too. And uh, depending on the funding that comes in uh, from our supporters, we are looking at uh, getting um, in a moving office closer uh, to within commuting distance of DC. So we wanna do a lot more activity and uh, start hosting workshops. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot that you can look forward to. Yeah, well, well, thank you, uh, Cyan. Thank you, James, for coming on board. Thank you, David, for co-hosting. I appreciate it. Uh, I want to thank everybody out there listening. I want to thank our moderators. I want to thank the donors. And I want to invite you to join us a week from today. There will be another Countercurrents radio stream. Pox Populi will host it. It's sort of not Christmas Eve, but the Eve before Christmas Eve stream. And we are trying to get guests from our community all over the white world to come and speak briefly about their favorite local Christmas customs, which really do vary quite widely from country to country. Of course, there's like the synthetic plastic Christmas stuff that you see uh, growing. They're, they even have Black Friday sales in countries in Europe now, and they don't even have Thanksgiving, but they have Black Friday. But there are still a, a wide variety of different interesting customs and also forms of music for Christmas. And so we're going to try and have a cozy Eve before Christmas Eve stream where people talk about Christmas customs and Christmas music from around the white world. So please uh, join us next week for that. I'm going to have so, to. I love Christmas music. Absolutely love it. Wonderful. Well, yeah. So uh, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on board and let's definitely have another conversation. This should be just the first of many. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us, Greg. It's long overdue in my opinion. Thank yeah, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Happy night.